Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 13, the last message in Hebrews, at least if I pick up some topics, then I, which I probably will, uh, before I'm, I'm done with it. But Hebrews chapter 13, I feel like I'm leaving an old friend here when I'm done with the book. But uh, it's been a real rich study for me and uh, an exciting study, a, a really grew in the Lord in understanding many of the Old Testament passages and how they relate to the sacrifices and to Christ and how it all points to one person and we're looking for a glorious future as believers uh, as we dwell in the city whose maker and builder is God. That's exciting, isn't it? And so something here in this, the end of this message to the Hebrews, the writer leaves us with a reminder that as we run the Christian race and grow in our knowledge of God and His promises and your faith, and our faith increases and our strength strengthens to hold fast to the testimony that we have in Jesus Christ, you're not done yet you will still have a need, a continual need for paying attention to the word of exhortation. You'll, you will still continue to have a need for taking notice and greeting fellow believers. And then you will continue to have a need for thinking of and practicing God's grace. Let's read the passage. Verses 22 to 25, it says, but I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Now that's the end of this book. Now, while I was back in chapter 12 in verse 1, if you just look there for a minute, the scripture brought, us, brought to our attention that the Christian life is very similar to a race. For it says, And let us run, in that passage, with endurance the race that is set before us. So the nature of this race is that you and I are in it. The moment we come to Christ, we're in it. And you and I are in it to give all our effort to cross the finish line. But remember, it is not a race to determine how fast you run. Neither is it a race that is competition with others. It is a race to determine success or failure in reaching the goal. The point of the race is not the one who finishes first. point of the race is that you finish whatever number you are in the race which you don't know anyway and you finish and of course according to Hebrews all with endurance finish and truth gives you the endurance your relationship with Christ gives you the endurance the spirit of God gives you the endurance so you see we need to think of the Christian life as a foot race and more like a cross-country race than any other kind of race. Because a cross-country race, when if you ever run cross-country, you're running and there's ditches and there's holes and there's fields and there's hills and there's declines and inclines, there's protruding roots, there's streams, there's obstacles of all kinds when you're running cross-country. And that's, that's really how the Christian life is. So the purpose of the race is just to finish the course. Finish this long-distance race despite hardships, despite exhaustion, despite aging, despite pain, despite everything. So part of running the race well is removing those things which will slow you down and hinder you from making good progress like weights and sins 
that he brings up in chapter 12. But there are things you will need to continue in so that you will endure unto the end and finish the Christian race well. And that's how he kind of ends the book. I've already mentioned them. Now let's take a closer look at them. And here's the first one in verse 22. He says this. The first one's this, that you have a continual need for paying attention to the word of exhortation. It says this, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. In other words, he is saying to us, listen, I have taken major theological topics and just briefly given them to you. Thirteen chapters, pretty heavy theology in the book of Hebrews. But he urges them, or he another way to encourage them that those possibly being urged may be those who have found this discourse somewhat disagreeable and they're losing out they may lose out on the benefits of really learning what's taught here in this book but it's basically a general exhortation to all believers that we 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 could never get along without the word of exhortation so he presses us yet with another imperative, and that word right there is, I urge you, brethren, to bear with. Bear with is the imperative. Scripture calls us not only to read the message of the Word of God, but also we are instructed to pay attention to it. Pay attention to the details of it. In other words, along the way, you have to ask yourself this question, what practical difference has this message made in your daily Christian experience? What has changed in your life since hearing the Word of God? Since hearing all the things that were, has been taught in the book of Hebrews, what's changed in your life? We should always be asking that question to ourselves in light of the teaching of God's Word, no matter when it's taught or what book you're in. See, has it encouraged you not to forsake the assembling of yourself together as a matter of some have? Has it, has it struck fear in your heart by its warnings? Has it caused you to well up with joy in your heart because, it's, because of its promises? Has it convicted you of the exclusiveness of faith in Christ alone for salvation? Has it provided you to open your heart more and more towards those who are in need and provide generosity and hospitality when it comes to your attention? See, has it caused you to consider the shortness of your life and that earth is not your permanent home, you are heading towards your permanent home? Has it made your heart loosen its grip on the pursuit of possessions and things and cause you to be content with what you have, what, what God has given you? Has it moved you to pray with an open and sincere heart before the Lord and be honest with God? This is who I am, Lord. This is what's happened in my life. This is where I sinned. Has it caused you to appreciate the extent to which the Lord went in order to supply you with full and final salvation? Has it taken you to glory? Has it caused you to stand in the middle of the, of the city whose builder and maker is God, that your heart hopes and trusts in Christ more now than ever before? See, has it, its teaching helped you to grasp the supremacy of Christ and move you to humble yourself in reverent worship? There is no one like Christ. You see, it should have done this and more. Because an exhortation, like the book of Hebrews, that's what it is. 
is designed to stir you up to ceaseless watchfulness, especially against your own backsliding, and cause you to press on in this race after Christ to the goal of Christian hope. So therefore, we ought to accept its message. We ought to ponder its message. We ought to obey its message and all its instructions and warnings and exhortations. Why? Well, because it applies to you. Because it applies to you. When you stop listening, you start doing your own thing. In other words, you start living for yourself again. So see, we could never be done with the word of exhortation, the preaching of the word of God. That's a continual thing that must always be present in the life of a believer, no matter who you are, where you are, how long you lived. You never get to the place where you know it all. You never get to the place where God's done with your sanctification. You never get to that place. Because right from sanctification, you go to glorification. Then you'll be perfect. Right? then you'll be perfect. But God, that's God's choice, not yours. So you never, never are done. That's a good thing, though, because we need the Word of God. We need the Word of God. And so the Word of God is going to uh, be the important ingredient that we never could get away from. A second thing that I want you to notice is a continual need for taking notice of and greeting fellow believers. I want you to notice what it says in verse number 23. It says, take notice. Again, another exhortation. Another, excuse me, imperative. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. And then in verse 24, greet all your leaders and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. So he, he's saying to them at the end, listen, I want you to take these two imperatives and practice them in your life. Why? Because if we don't take notice of people, other people, who's going to take notice of them? All right? And then he mentions a person to take notice of. Take notice of Timothy, our brother. Who is he? A pastor, an evangelist, probably in jail because he's preaching the gospel? The intention and emphasis here is that this Hebrew church had something to do with Timothy's release, either by prayers or by doing something to bring about his release, or both. See, it's the church, remember, that ought to pay attention to those who are downcast, those who have been inflicted and afflicted, those people who don't, people don't take notice of. The church ought to do that because especially someone who ends up in jail, incarcerated for preaching the gospel. Matter of fact, anybody who's incarcerated, even if they're incarcerated because of their own sin, we ought to take notice of them. Because if we don't as a church, no one will. Just for example, I recently received a letter from a young man that I knew in the past who came to our church as a Rutgers College student. He came to know the Lord uh, back 15 or more years ago. Then he backslid and had gotten away from the Lord and ended up leaving the church in the wrong way. Well, I lost track of him and others lost track of him. I tried to contact him a few times and I learned that when people don't want to be contacted, then they know how to stay at an arm's length and even become invisible. And that's what he did. He, we tried to reach him, and we couldn't reach him. And I recently received a letter from him. December, last December, the end of December. I think it was right after Christmas I got the letter. And when I opened the letter, a handwritten letter, this is how it began, and I want to read it part of it. It says, greeting to you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then this is what it says next. Please forgive me for leaving the church in the manner that I did 
and that I have not been in contact with you for so many years, I humbly ask that you will please forgive me. I hope and pray that you and your family and all that are at Calvary are well. That was 15 years ago. I haven't heard him from, from him or talked with him since. He tried to call me one time, but it didn't work out. I happened to lose my phone uh, and not lose it, but it went haywire on me. I took it to the guy to uh, fix it. He took my card out and erased all my numbers in the phone, and one of them was his. Well, obviously the Lord didn't want to uh, want for me to talk to him at that particular point, but it shows signs of righteous behavior in this particular letter, and I thought to myself, it looks like the Lord got a hold of his life and brought him back to himself And I was reminded of the passage of Scripture right in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8 through 11, on God's discipline. And remember, it says this in verse 8 of chapter 12, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. And then it says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It seems like the Lord got a hold of him and was disciplining him. Now, I did not mention to you that this letter came from Sanford, Safford, excuse me, Safford, Arizona, which is the home of the Federal Correction Institute, of which he is a resident. You see, this young man fell in with the wrong people and was, was led away by his own passions and desires of the flesh and ended up committing a federal crime. Ultimately, he got caught. And now he is doing time for his crime. He is receiving justice. Now, after receiving that letter, I could say to myself, well, that's good, I'm glad he's doing better and God has a hold of him, but he's in prison. If we don't take notice of him, who will? I didn't give you his name purposely because I want to write a letter first to him, then I'm going to give you his name because then I want everybody to write. He's going to get more mail in th- there while he's incarcerated. Uh, I think it's a four-year term he's on, maybe than anybody. I prayed that would happen. See, now in our culture, that claims general goodness of man, he and people like him are considered human trash. They're considered the lowest of the low. But the human view of goodness is upside down and backwards. According to the Old Testament, chapter 14 of Psalms, verse number 3, it says, there is no one who does good, not even one. Well, Paul picks that up in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 3, and he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So as Christians, we understand at the end of the day, We are in the same boat. We are really no better than the vilest offenders. Do you see yourself like that? Are you being corrected in your mind as to who you really are? Because that's what we ought to. We ought to see ourselves through the lenses of Scripture. The difference is that we have a hope an assurance that we have been forgiven by God through Christ Jesus. But what about those who are locked up? Who will give them hope? Do they deserve a second chance? Maybe the world says no, but the church says yes, they do. As long as they have red blood running through their veins, they have a second chance. They blew it. They got caught. They're incarcerated. They did things that were wicked. But remember, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 34, 
He says, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. And one of the prisoners could have been Timothy. And that's why he brings it up at the end. Because they prayed for him. They had something to do with his release. Now this young man that I was talking about, he further wrote this. I will gladly share as factually as I am able the events that have led up to me being here and how God has been exceedingly gracious has exceedingly graciously been working with me over these years and still now. God's hand on him. God's keeping him. And if God has to bring someone sometimes to a situation like that, that's God's grace. He's recognizing that. That's huge. So he has something to do with us. And we ought to take notice of him. If we don't, no one will. Maybe his family. So I'll make and address a letter to him, and then I'll make his address available and his name available to you. Some of you know him. Few know him, but I know him. And I pray that you would come to know him too. So he is saying in this passage of Scripture, listen, take notice. That's a command. Take notice of people. In other words, don't just live for yourself in your own little world. If you know all this stuff and God's been gracious to give you this knowledge, you are hugely responsible. You can't just put, stick your tail between your legs and walk out the door as if you don't know something. Can't do it anymore. Sorry. You're the church. The church ought to be different. People in the church ought to be different. And part of being different is noticing people. And especially people who have been knocked from pillar to post in this world. And even by their own family and their own sin. We ought to take notice of them. And then in the passage of Scripture, it says also here to not only take notice of Timothy, but if Timothy gets released, I'm going to come with him. Now, whoever the writer of Hebrews is, it seems very Pauline at the end here. Uh, and some people, a lot of the reformers think that Paul actually wrote Hebrews. I don't think he did. I, I think Apollos wrote Hebrews. That's, that's my only opinion. But I think that, remember, Apollos and Timothy and Paul, they were all together ministering. And, uh, and so, therefore, um, Paul says, hey, listen, if Timothy comes, I'm coming with him. Because we, we're at all part of him, of him coming out, and he's been a great brother, and so I'm going to come with him. But then he says also in verse uh, number 24, another command to greet your leaders. Here's like the third time that he's talking about leadership. I think the point here is to express kind and respectful attention for those who bear an office in the church. In other words, they're God's gift to you. So the attitude that you should have towards them is an attitude of welcoming them, of greeting them. Of course, that it would include praying for them, lifting them up, encouraging them. All those things are included. And then he says in verse number 24, and all the saints... So he's telling us, listen, take notice of those who are downcast. Take notice of your leaders. Take notice of all the saints, both in your congregation and outside your congregation, because from time to time their names are going to come up for a particular reasons. And he's saying all the saints. I love when he uses the word saints, because remember, saints means separated ones. And if you don't believe it this morning, you're a saint if you know Christ. You are a saint set apart by God for himself. Set apart from this world, lying under the wicked one, removed from darkness to light, devoted now to love and fear and the service of God and his son and his people. 
So we're to welcome the true members of the visible church, whomever they are, and wherever they come from. Whoever God's going to save, they're part of the body. They're part of the group of saints. And then he says, they're then to have mutual regards for everyone. For he says, those from Italy greet you. How true, how true it is, Christianity breaks down social barriers and melts all kinds of prejudices. So the, the Christians in Italy are contacting a Hebrew church, Gentiles greeting a Hebrew church. You know that the Romans and the Jews did not get along. But here you have Romans and Jews, Italians and Hebrews. They were accustomed to regard each other with contempt, with even hatred. But in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Roman, neither Italian nor Hebrew. All are one in Christ. There's no such thing as skin color. There's no such thing as well, there are things as those things, but when you become a believer, we're all one. None of those things that the world seems to want to always push out there to keep the flames going, that should dissipate in the church. Because if I think of our own congregation, we have Jamaicans in the church. We have Hawaiians in the church. We have Islanders in the church. We have Brazilians in Chileans, we have Puerto Ricans and Spanish, we have African Americans, we have Italians, we have Thais, we have Taiwanese, we have Chinese, we have Korean, we have Arabian, we have Jewish, we have Filipino, and we have the English and the Irish. We have the Scot, and we have the Slovakian and Germans, and we even have the Polish. Me. But you know what? None of those things should matter in Christ everything's broken down in Christ you are just like me I'm just like you and we have a common bond and that's our Lord and Savior so I think what he's saying here at the end listen all the barriers break down whether social or otherwise political they should melt down all kinds of prejudices in the church until there's none none See, that's what the church is about, and that's what Christ does in your heart. So if you came from a particularly prejudiced type of family that had certain, whether the prejudices are, are social or whether they're passed down, whatever they may be, in Christ, those things are going to be broken down. Maybe not immediately, but they will be until you no longer see people as black, white, yellow, or whatever color they are, or, or they're, they're, they're this nationality or that nationality, they come from this part of the world, that part of the world, that means nothing. Nothing. We're all one in Christ. And it's neat to have fellowship with people who are so different than you in their mannerisms, in the way they speak, in what they eat. And... Uh, I think it's exciting to meet people from all different cultures and learn from them. So, see, we're to take notice of other believers, who they are, how God is working in their lives, and how can you can pray for them and how you can help them. That's what we ought to do. Take notice of people. But then there's one more. We're to continue... We have a continual need not only for the word of exhortation, but we have a continual need for taking notice of others, whoever they are, the leaders, and of course those who are downcast and imprisoned, and those who have special needs. And then we have, in verse number 25, we have a continual need for thinking of and practicing God's grace. Look what it says there, and this is how it ends. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Divine grace or favor is often used as a fixed formula at the beginning and the end of Christian letters, and it is so in this case. 
But you have to ask yourself, why? Why grace be with you? Why that? Why is that so important? I believe because you must always be thinking about and practicing God's grace. That if you are going to endure this race, and we are going to endure it together, then we have to, be, we have to remember and practice God's grace. The, the divine, sovereign kindness of God. That's what it is. So may you always be ready to recall the proofs of his particular love and care for you because his loving kindness is better than life. But you know what? One of the most misunderstood things in the Christian life is this very word grace. I am still learning about it. Now, I want to bring to your attention that the writer of Hebrews mentions this very important word, grace, seven times in different contexts. But before I mention them, I want to step back a bit so that you may once again grasp an understanding of the risky business of grasping the full impact of God's grace. And that you would do so, so you would be able to hedge against the temptation to become grace abusers or grace killers. Because you will be one or the other if you don't understand it. To do this, we must go back to the doctrine of justification. Remember, the definition of justification. It's this. It's the sovereign act of God whereby he declares righteous the believing sinner while still in his sinning state. I am stressing the sinning part of God's work in justification. It doesn't mean that the believing sinner stops sinning once they become believers. And it doesn't even mean that the believing sinner is made righteous in the sense of suddenly becoming perpetually perfect. The sinner is declared righteous by God. God sovereignly bestows the gift of eternal life on the sinner at the moment he believes and thereby declares him righteous while the sinner lives a life marked by periodic times of sinfulness for example in this example here's a person who hasn't joined the church yet he hasn't uh, started giving yet hasn't, hasn't been baptized yet hasn't promised to live a sacrificial spotlessly pure life yet he has simply taken the gift of eternal life has seen himself a sinner needing salvation from Christ. His mind has been changed in regard to Christ, and he has trusted him by faith. That's repentance. He has received the free gift of God apart from any works that he could ever offer God. And that's it. The transaction is complete when one does that. By grace, through faith alone, God declares the sinner righteous. That's justification. And from that moment, from the moment of justification, from the moment a sinner is justified, he begins the process of growth toward maturity. That's sanctification. And little by little, little by little, he or she learns what it means to live a life that pleases and honors God. That's sanctification. It's a process. So, Matter of fact, he learns to live a life that pleases and honors Christ. So justification means, even though I still periodically sin and found myself unable to stop sinning on a permanent basis, 
God declares me righteous when I believed. You see, that has everything to do with God's grace and grace living. Because you and I will continue to sin from time to time. Therefore, we should have all the more reason to be grateful for God's grace. As a sinner, our only hope for survival is grace. Let's just imagine that you have a six-year-old son whom you love dearly. Tragically, one day, you discover that your son was horribly murdered. After a lengthy search, the investigators of the crime find the killer. At that point, you have a choice. If you use every means in your power to kill the murderer for the crime, that would be vengeance. And the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, vengeance is not ours, it's God's, right? If, however, you, you're content to sit back and let the legal authorities take over and execute on him what is proper, a fair trial, a plea of guilty, capital punishment, that would be justice. God allows us to get justice in the world sometimes through our system. But if you should plead for the pardon of the murderer, if you should forgive him completely, if you should invite him into your home, if you should adopt him as your son, that's grace. You see, God's grace is risky. Yet that is what God does every single time someone comes to faith in Christ. He takes a condemned, guilty, believing sinner who says, I'm lost, I'm unworthy, I'm guilty as charged, undeserving of forgiveness. And he extends the free gift of eternal life because of Christ's death on the cross, because his death has satisfied his demands against sin, and God sees the guilty sinner who comes by faith alone as righteous as his own son. In fact, he even invites us to come home with him and adopts us into his forever family. Instead of treating us with vengeance or executing justice, God extends grace. That's grace. I find that no explanation can fully cause us to grasp God's grace and what God actually did. So see, if, if you're not grasping grace, then you're going to either fall in the category of being a grace killer, and of course people have called calls that legalism, right? Uh, and somebody who's thinking like that, somebody who is legalistic in their thinking, always emphasize works over grace. They opt for giving lists of do's and don'ts, whether it's personal or traditional. And they do that to earn, it's their criteria to earn God's acceptance. But God's already accepted them. That's justification. He's always justified you. He's already accepted you fully in Christ Jesus. So there's nothing else you and I can do to gain God's favor or grace. Also, a grace killer leaves no room for gray areas. Fellowship is based on whether there is full agreement, rigid standards, more important than relationships with individuals. Grace killers try to work off sin. That's what they try to do. They try to work off sin. And when they do that, they have misunderstood and moved away from what the Bible says about God's grace. Grace abusers are people who give license to their sin. They go too far and set aside all self-control. They take their liberty to an extreme that they end up serving sin again, just like what Paul said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 15. What then? 
Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. So grace abusers blow off sin. Both of those are wrong. Can't work off sin, or you'll be somehow trying to add to the work of Christ on the cross, right? And you cannot blow off sin. Why? Because now you're a believer in God's family, and now God's not saying you have to do this. He's putting in your heart a desire to want to do this, to love him, to serve him out of gratitude and thankfulness, right? So that's why the Bible is always emphasizing thankfulness and gratitude. Why? Because when you're thankful and you're, you are definitely gracious in your expression of praise to God for what he's done for you, you are hedging against being a grace abuser or being a grace killer. See, God has saved us to such an extent that we can do nothing at all to add to it. Now, let me just take you to the seven occurrences that is used in Hebrews in the use of this word grace. In Hebrews chapter 2, in verse number 9, when expounding on the work of Christ, the writer of Hebrews says this, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So even in the work of Christ, in dying for sins, it is God's grace that moves him to be sacrificed for his children. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, when we are invited to pray, we're reminded of God's grace where it says this, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of what? Grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So even when we're prodded to pray, what is that, that overarching word? Grace. When Scripture expounds the perils of apostasy, we are reminded and we're reminded of the seriousness of, of falling backward away from Christ that even those who have insult the Spirit of God. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. In other words, God's spirit who is offering to you freely God's salvation, you just blow it off, or people just blow it off. Do you know there's no forgiveness for sin if somebody does that? That's it. That's God's final word. And when Scripture warns the congregation to make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of God's grace. See, in other words, we begin this life of faith by grace, by God's saving grace, and only by grace can we continue. Only by grace can we move forward. So the author is concerned that none who are running in the race fall behind and turn aside from the prize that is set before them. So the passage there is speaking of the absolute and disastrous eventually, eventuality of cutting oneself off from the grace of God, and this person, instead of being carried forward by God's grace, turns from it, and in turning from it, of course, uh, being left behind and lost, not believing Moses is one thing, but not believing in Jesus Christ is quite another thing. Not believing in the greater than Moses, the faithful apostle and high priest Jesus Christ is ruinous to someone's eternity. He uses the word grace, the spirit of grace. In fact, when, you're, when we are called to thankfulness, what does he say? He brings up 
the word grace again in Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, same word, grace, by which we may offer God acceptable service with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. In other words, grace is the practical application of goodwill, a sign of favor. It is a gift that God gives us, and then in turn we give to others, and we practice in our life ourselves. So when Scripture reminds us that the only way to be strengthened in this Christian race is by grace, Hebrews 9, 13, 9, do not be carried away by various strange teachings. In other words, especially in light of the works-based teaching of false teachers, trying to get you to do something, He's saying to us then, listen, uh, do not be carried away, chapter 13, verse 9, by various, varied and strained t- teaching, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited, but strengthened by God's grace. Keep going back to what grace is and understand what the Lord's done for you and how it is free, completely free. And yes, the Christian life is not an easy one. And yet, we are not left to fend for ourselves, but are regularly reminded in Scripture that we have a gracious God who is generous and kind with his children and will meet all his people's needs. That's what Hebrews is teaching us. So we find, as we grow in our knowledge of God, which means we will grow in our faith in him, and when we depend on grace, we cannot be shaken. For he even says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show grace. Let us show grace. And when we live like this, we will keep running until we finish. So I believe believe that we have embarked on a journey that has brought us to a place in which we all had the opportunity to once again fall in love with our Lord Jesus Christ and come to worship him more consistently and more deeply than ever before. And I pray, I pray that that if, if this study has done that in some way, then I praise God for that. But also, if you didn't really know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that by the study you were led to faith and repentance by his word. If you have, then let somebody know about that. Tell someone what it has done. Talk to someone about what you have learned in it. And my prayer for you today is that you will know and forever know I think I pray that you would forever more follow him with your heart all the days of your life. If you did not know him, that you would come to know him. And if you did know him, that your understanding of the supremacy of Christ would have become clearer and more solidified in your heart and mind than ever before. So he ends it like that. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Well, remember, he does say this. When we're running the race, that race will be by faith. That you would run and endure to the end and that you would finish well. It doesn't say you will finish perfect you will finish well. We always finish well. The direction of our life is never perfection. It's always the direction of our life is to please God uh, with our whole heart, mind, and soul to the ability that we have. 
So what are we left with at the end? We need to pay attention to what God says in his word. We need to take notice of others. And when we do, we hedge against the sin of selfishness and self-centeredness. And we need to think of and practice God's grace. When we do, we will take sin serious. And we will hedge against being grace killers that try to work off sin and grace abusers that blow off sin. And if we do that, then we will run the race well. That's why he ends with grace be with you all. Because that's what we need more than anything in running the race. Never to forget that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for your divine graciousness to us. Lord, we know from reading the word of God, we don't deserve your grace. And yet, Lord, because you are a gracious God, you give it to us. And you have done everything possible to secure the offer that you make to us as free. And you do that through your son, Jesus Christ, who has the supremacy of all persons and things in heaven and earth in all of creation, seen and unseen. There is no one like Jesus Christ. There's no one like your son. And we praise you, Lord, for that. We praise you for the understanding we have of that. And I pray, Lord, as we walk out, and we live our Christian life, as we run this Christian race, we would remember our responsibilities. We would remember our needs. And I pray, Lord, that we would continue to be challenged by the Word of God. We would grow by it. It would increase our faith. It would cause us to endure every day the race that's set before us. I pray, Lord, that we would not have our eyes on ourselves, but we would have our eyes on you and then others. And then that we would see needs and that we would want to meet those needs, that we would want to share with what you've given us with others. And I pray also, Lord, that we would also see that need of the unmerited favor of God that's been given to us through Christ Jesus and realize that we can easily slip in onto one side or the other. Help us, Lord, to keep a balance. I pray that your word would help us to keep that balance. And as we do, Lord, that your spirit of God would take hold of us and would continue that sanctifying process. And Lord, if need be, you must discipline us, then please do so. So we would share in your grace. Thank you, Lord, again for this time, for this book for all that you've taught in it and all that you've worked in the heart of your children. And I pray, Lord, now we would learn to live and desire to live for the glory of your great name. And I pray this all in Christ uh, and for the advancement of his church, for the evangelization of the world and for the building up of the church. Thank you, Lord, again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.